the first command that Jesus ever gave was simple. Repent. Literally, this means to rethink, to decide to change direction in light of new information. The problem with many of us, though, is that we only rethink the next life in light of Jesus. But that's not what he says. Rethink this life. You who are poor, rethink your poverty. You who are rich, rethink your wealth. You who are moral, rethink your goodness. Why? Because the time has come. I am here. Good morning, my name is Jay. Welcome to Cultivate. Um, we're uh, in the middle of a series that we are calling Rethink, and uh, we are now one-third of the way through. This is the fifth message of 15 parts that we're doing from New Year's Day to Easter Sunday. And uh, we're really surveying the book of Mark, one of the four Gospels, and uh, we're doing that together as we're reading it on our own, we're discussing it in our life groups, uh, we're talking about it on Sunday morning all in the hope that we will, over this period of time, rethink literally every aspect of our lives in light of a relationship with Jesus. Uh, because when he comes into a life, we can either make him part of the periphery of our lives, just sort of the tapestry or the wallpaper of our lives and live our lives the way that we'd like to, or we can allow him into the very center of our lives and let him kind of do what he does best, which is remake everything. And we've been looking through that for five weeks now. Last week, we had the, the honor of having Robert Turner come and uh, give one of the parts of those messages, and he talked about the parable of the soils and uh, what it means to be good soil and how to feed the soil so that you can have a healthy plant. If you're looking to catch up on that message, we do have that on podcast now, and you can uh, catch up. But we're going to take a little bit of a different track today. Uh, normally, what I'd like to do is sort of paint for everyone kind of a big picture idea, and then we work that big picture through the scripture that we're talking about. We may pull from a lot of different areas. We may kind of outline some points and then make some applications all towards that big idea. And I was looking at the passage for today, uh, which is about Jesus healing a woman and a young girl, and the story is really so rich that it kind of stands on its own. And so what I'd like to do is instead, we're just going to kind of take the passage piece by piece, kind of work our way through it a little bit like Pete did a few weeks ago, and uh, kind of, I'm just going to kind of share what I think God's teaching me through it, and I hope it's applicable for you as well. So we're going to jump right into the story uh, and look at a story about Jesus who is in every way a man like us, and yet in every way he is totally unlike us. Um, so we're going to pick up in uh, Mark 5. Uh, starting in verse 21. I think it's 697, page 697, if you're looking to follow along in one of the Bibles underneath the chairs. Uh, but it says this, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was still by the lake. What does it mean by again? Uh, last week we talked about Robert taught on the parable of the soils, right? And uh, a week has passed by for us since that message until today. You know how much time has passed by for Jesus? About half a day. So he teaches on the parable of the soils, and then once he's done, he teaches a whole bunch of other parables about the kingdom of God. And then what he does is he goes with his disciples and he gets into a, a boat to kind of draw away from people and head onto the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is a, a, a body of water. It's about the size of a lake. So they get into this boat and they start rowing across the lake to kind of get away from people. And something very unique happens on their journey. You may have heard this story before because a large storm kicks up in the middle of it. It's about evening time for them, uh, maybe around 5 o'clock or so. As they're going along, huge storm kicks up on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is so exhausted from his day already that he is sleeping. He is sound asleep in the middle of the boat. So this storm is raging, and eventually disciples wake him up. They're freaked out because they've never seen anything like this before. And Jesus, being God, gets up, and he calms the wind and the waves, and it's still again. 
And so from, from there, they cross over to the other side of the lake. And Jesus' work isn't done yet. Because once they get to the other side of the lake, starting in Mark 5, you see that Jesus' welcoming committee, when he hits the ground on the other side of the lake, is a demon-possessed guy who's naked and lives in a graveyard. Welcome, Jesus. So, you know, like the, the big banner. This is like, roll it out. And apparently he's so strong that he can't be chained. He lives uh, among the graves and the tombs. And this is the guy that greets Jesus on the shore banks when he comes to the other side of the lake. And so it says that he cast out the demon and he ministers to people on that side of the lake. A lot of things, right? You get in the picture, it's late in the day. He gets back in the boat with his disciples. You think they're a little freaked out by now? We're getting back in the boat, Jesus? Of course, like it's the difference between getting back on the lake or being with the demon-possessed guy. And they're like, you go home and be with your family. We're going to get back in the boat. We'll take our chances with the storm. And they get back in the boat and they start rowing across and then they get to another point in the lake. They hit the shore and that's kind of where this story begins. You ever had like one of those days where you think, I, does it ever end? You know? <laughs> Every day. Where you just you get home and you sort of collapse and you think, I, I just want nothing to do with the world anymore. He's sort of having like one of these days, right? Where you just get home and you think, I don't want anything to do with the world anymore. I just want it to go away. No more phone calls, no more texts, no more Facebook, no more emails. He's having a day like that. I had kind of a season like that actually just recently um, around the Christmas holiday. Uh, Mandy and I kind of uh, joked about a year ago when we went through Christmas in 2010 that uh, it was about the time that we were making the decision to, to relaunch and launch Cultivate Church. Um, but for us, the Christmas season was kind of relaxing. We didn't have a whole lot to do other than to kind of make the decision and pray and prepare for January as we were about to launch with this new community and, and with a new direction. But other than that, the holiday season itself wasn't all that busy. And I remember thinking on Christmas Eve, boy, this is the last time it's going to be like this for a while, you know? <laughs> and sure enough, a year passed, and, and December ended up being, for me personally, the busiest month of the entire year. Because not only is it the normal sort of preparations for Christmas, but add on to that all the preparations for Sunday services. And we didn't even, as a community, we tried to keep the level low in terms of the activity of the church because we didn't want to kind of burden all of the extra people that were, had poured into the church all year and give them more responsibilities and more things to do. But even in that state, I remember getting through to Christmas Eve and just kind of like collapsing. Thank God we're here. And it just went by in the blink of an eye. Um, and so since then, you know, we've had the opportunity to take some vacation, kind of recharge and everything. Uh, but it was one of those seasons for me, and I'm sure you've had those kind of seasons too, where we just wish that the world would kind of go away. Times when you may even know that somebody needs your help, and you just have nothing left in the tank to give to them. And he's sort of having one of these seasons in his life. But as we'll see through the rest of this story, Jesus is not like us. In fact, he gives everything to the people that he's about to encounter in a, just a remarkable way. The, the way that he continues to pour himself out until there is literally nothing left in his body, as we'll see throughout the rest of the book of Mark, is really extraordinary. And in fact, Jesus, the Bible says, lives today and is still for us doing that same work for us in an unexhaustible kind of way. Hebrews 7 actually puts it this way, because Jesus lives forever. He is on the other side of death. He has risen from the grave. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. We actually just sang about that this morning, because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus lives today for you and for me, for all the children who, who call God Father through Jesus. He lives actually to intercede and to pray for us 24 hours a day. Did you know that? Uh, kind of a sidebar note, this is as a church why we don't 
venerate saints and why we don't pray to other people besides Jesus, besides God. Because for, for us, those are all kind of secondary pictures throughout the entire story of the Bible. Jesus is really the main attraction. And so for us, it, it makes no sense to pray to Mary because Jesus lives. He lives. And he intercedes for those people who come to him. And if, if I have the choice between kind of imperfect people and Jesus, I'm going to go with Jesus every time. Maybe it's just my preference, but that means a lot to me. On an even a more practical level, this is why it, it's a great thing to be prayed for by other people. It really is. And, and I really, I, I love to pray uh, for the people of our church. I love to pray with the people of our church. And, and really, any time that somebody comes to me and says, will you pray for me, I, I just love those moments of being able to join together with other people and seek God together. But even that is secondary to being able to have the knowledge to know that Jesus prays for you and with you every time, if you are a child of God, he comes alongside of you and says, I'm right there with you. And your prayers have been heard by me, and I have brought those prayers before the Father in heaven. And because of that, they are heard, they're welcomed in, and you are loved. That's what Jesus does for us. It's an amazing truth, even if, as we kind of start out this passage. And so Jesus is intersected by all these people. And then it says, one of them uh, was a synagogue ruler. His name was Jairus. He came there. And seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be, she will be healed and live. And it says, so Jesus went with him. After all of his day, right, all the energy that he exerts, he says, I am going to go with you and heal your daughter. A little bit on Jairus, it says that uh, he was a synagogue ruler. And this is probably a very small town that he lives in, not a whole lot of people. And so he's a pretty re well-respected guy. Um, he's one of the leaders in the synagogue, kind of like a pastor in, in sort of modern language. Well-respected, well-liked probably. A lot of people probably knew his story and about his daughter and the situation that she was in. He comes before Jesus in the midst of the entire community and he throws himself on Jesus' feet and said, please, please come to my house. My daughter isn't well. Just so you know a little bit about that time, if you were a Jewish man, especially a well-respected leader in that society, you don't throw yourself at anyone's feet. Because you're well-respected, you're well-liked. People come to you for problems, you don't go to them. So you can almost hear the desperation in his voice as he comes to Jesus and he says, please, help me. And he shows that desperation by actually kneeling on the ground before him in front of the entire community and says, I'm going to put away my pride, and I'm going to humble myself before the only one that can make a difference in my daughter's life. How many of you have, are fathers of girls? Yes, hold your hands up high, dads. Come on. Quite a few of you. Um, let me just say that that is a tremendous honor for you. Um, and I don't have a, a daughter myself, but I'm part of a life group that seems to love to produce them. <laughs> and in fact, we have two more daughters on the way in our life group. Uh, in addition to how many do we have so far? I can't even count them on one hand anymore. We're, young men from all over New Jersey are going to be flocking to cultivate church in a few years, let me tell you. Because we have... It, <laughs> We produce them in mass, and they are quality women, let me tell you. <laughs> um, God, has, God obviously has given me the privilege of, of raising a son so far, and we don't have a daughter yet. But um, I will say this, and, and they don't, what's that? Oh, just wait for it, yeah. Um, but but I, it, it makes me so enjoy the, the, the girls in our life because I get to see them grow. And, 
Um, they don't know I was going to share this, but we got the chance just to um, watch Lillian McNamara last night as Kyle and Natalie were out glow bowling with our youth ministry and, uh, and investing in those guys. Um, but I, I love to see the contrast between the little girl and the little boy because Caleb's kind of like rough and tumble, you know. He, he, he talks a lot, but he doesn't um, kind of communicate a lot. Verbal. Like he, he talks all the time, but uh, he, he, it's almost like talking to himself, you know. He, he's kind of working things out in his own mind, and he's, you know, he kind of toddles around. He's not the sturdiest thing in the world, and he runs into a lot of stuff. And, um but it's interesting to see the contrast between him, who's this rough-and-tumble little boy, and, and Lillian, who's this sweet little girl. And she, you know, stayed with us for, for the evening, and uh, she was already in her PJs and everything. And just, uh, you know, Caleb walks around kind of trying to figure everything out. You know, he's, like, looking around and, like, trying to make sense of the world. Lillian walks around with, like, the biggest smile on her face, waving at everything. You know, she's... <laughs> But she's the sweetest little girl, and, and, you know, she hopped up on her lap as we were watching TV and just getting to spend time with her. I just so enjoy that because there's such a contrast between young boys and young girls. There's such a special bond, I think. And I, I got just like a little bit of a glimpse as to why dads just uh, fall to pieces whenever their little girls are in the room because they have the key to their heart, right? They just, they know exactly what buttons to press to get right into daddy's heart. From day one, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I remember the day that Lillian was born and the look on Kyle's face, and I was like, what's wrong with you, you know? <laughs> I share all that to imagine for yourself what it must be like for Jairus to know that his little girl isn't well. Think of, as a dad, how incredibly difficult that is. And then think of Jesus coming into your village, and you know that may be your only shot at seeing her well. You would do anything to get to that man, wouldn't you? That is what's going on. That is why he is able to fall down at Jesus' feet in front of everybody and say, please come to my house. Because he's desperate. Dads, you guys who raised your hand before, let me give you this piece of advice. Be like Jairus. Because the best fathers, the best parents in general know something very, very specific. The best fathers know it's their job to bring Jesus home. And it's the best fathers that know that Jesus is the only one that will ultimately impact and save their children. So be like Jairus. Be, be the, the, the father who talks about Jesus and invests in their kids and lets them know how much Jesus means to them as a person. Let them know how, how incredible life lived with Jesus is. Let them know what it means to be in that relationship with him. Do everything that you can to pass on that reality to your children because it will make the difference. Don't wait for the church to do it for you because if they see one thing on Sunday morning and they see the absence of that thing the rest of the week, there is no chance for them to ever accept it on their own because they will see it as nothing but hypocrisy. Be gyrus, dads. I implore you, please, and I'm talking to myself too, be like gyrus. Bring Jesus home. Make him part of your life. Make him part of your family. Part of my history is that I, kinda, I grew up without Jesus. And it gives me the appreciation to know what life was like before him and what life is like with him. And I will never go back to the way things were before. And I thank God for the opportunity to be able to raise Caleb with that knowledge, not just on Sundays, but at home. Because it will change the way that he lives forever. It will change the way he operates in this world. And ultimately, it will change his eternal destiny.
But because of Jairus, Jesus goes, right? Without complaint, after this marathon of a day, he goes to heal this guy's daughter. And in order to get there, though, he finds some resistance along the way. Jesus needs to press through a lot of the other needs around him. So it says, a large crowd followed him and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. A lot of doctors have tried stuff with her, right? And it spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought to herself, if I could just touch his clothes, then I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. This woman had been subject to some kind of discharge for 12 years. And because it was so demeaning for her, such a debilitating condition, she spent her entire life savings trying to find something, anything that would make her well. I know, just talking to a room this size, that some of you are either in that position or you know people who have been in that position. They will do anything to get well, and they will spend anything to get well. Pete talked about some of his uh, friends who are spending everything to make sure to see their son overcome this brain tumor that he has. She's in this place. Can you feel it? Not only that, but Leviticus 15 says that uh, because she is bleeding bodily, uh, she is in a perpetual state of ritual uncleanness. Leviticus 15 says that anybody who is having some kind of bodily discharge, and that includes blood, is hands off from everyone. She's an untouchable. You can't go near her because if you do, you become unclean too. And so she walks around with this knowledge 24 hours a day. Women, can you imagine for 12 years nobody hugs her? Nobody kisses her on the cheek. Nobody lays a hand on her and says, let me pray for you. Can you feel that? Nobody holds her hand for 12 years. Imagine what that does to you, to live your life alone. You eat alone, you worship alone, you work alone, you play alone, you do everything alone because nobody will go near you. And not only that, but because you're constantly discharging blood, everybody knows where you've been. And they do their best to just kind of stay away. Don't walk where she walked because you might become unclean too. Can you feel that? Imagine how humiliating that is. It's hard to fathom. And yet Jesus comes to town and in faith she says, I've got to be part of the crowd. And she risks everything, right? Because this is a large crowd. Everyone's pushing in, and she risks bumping into a lot of people and making them unclean. If just she could reach out her hand in faith and touch Jesus because she believes that through him she'll be well. It's actually a perfect picture of what faith looks like. And here's the thing, because you think maybe she'll kind of make him unclean, right? That in her uncleanness, nothing has worked to this point, and she's going to risk making someone else unclean if only she could get clean herself. But it doesn't happen. It happens in the opposite way. The one who is clean, Jesus, makes her clean too. And she knows it immediately. She can feel it in her body that some transformation has taken place, and there is no bleeding anymore. This is, for us, a perfect picture of salvation. Because we too, like her, are in a state, apart from God, of uncleanliness. It's a condition which is brought on by something called sin. And it's something that we're all affected with. Nobody gets a pass on it. 
that has infected every part of our lives, our relationship with God, our relationship with people, how we view time, right? We all are subject to death, all because of sin, because of this disease that infects each and every one of us. And we, like her, when we see Jesus for who he is, when we reach out our hand in faith to just touch him, not only does he not become unclean, he makes us clean. He transfers his cleanliness, his right relationship with God. All the things that are accredited to Jesus become accredited to us because we've reached out our hand in faith and said, Jesus, come and heal me. And he does. It's the amazing thing about knowing Jesus is that he does. He comes into our life and he changes everything, changes our future. Because of that, we know instantly that we are made well in him. That's what faith is all about. Let me say this, no matter how dirty we think we are, I mean, 12 years being unclean is a long time, correct? I think part of that that, sh- that Mark shares for us is to know that there is no dirt that cannot be cleaned. And so many of us, we think we go through life and we think, yeah, Jesus, it all sounds great and good, but you don't have any idea what I've done. The fact of the matter is, Jesus does. And he still cleans He knows exactly where you've been. He knows exactly what you've done. He knows exactly who you've been with. And yet he chooses to come into your town and make himself available to you. That's our Jesus. And even though her blood made her dirty, Jesus' blood makes her clean. And he makes us clean too. So at once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. I don't know how he does that, but uh, somehow he does. Maybe you can discuss that in life group. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? It's kind of like God in the garden saying, where are you? You know, He's wondering, "Who, who touched my clothes? And I love the disciples' response, right? They're always the classic, like, practical wisdom. You see the people crowding around against you. The disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? Jesus, you're in a mosh pit, and you asked, who pushed me? You know, it's like, (laughs) there are people everywhere here. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at Jesus' feet. And trembling with fear, remember that phrase, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Look at Jesus' response. He said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Why was she afraid? Maybe it's because she thought that in her cleanliness, she kind of made him unclean, you know? She's used to making other people unclean when they touch her. My theory is something like this, though, that she was still in a state of uncleanliness in her mind. She knew that she had been healed immediately, She felt the stop of blood in her. And yet in her mind, she still considered herself unclean. And what does Jesus do? Instead of condemning her, he says, daughter. Even though her body is free, her mind is still imprisoned. Let let me just implore you, don't live in that state. If you have been healed by Jesus, live in the state of freedom in which he gives you. Don't allow your mind and your heart to be enslaved by things that once had mastery over you. Don't don't allow yourself to condemn yourself for who you are, but instead look at Jesus and what he's already done and allow that knowledge to give you freedom to live a new life. Because it's available to you, just as it was available to her. Instead of condemning her, he, sent, he extends grace to her. He calls her daughter. You want to know my theory on that? I think the reason he called her daughter is because she doesn't have a gyrus in her life. She doesn't have anyone that's come alongside of her and said, I'm going to go find Jesus for you. Stay here. Everything is going to be okay. 
She's gone around for 12 years alone. She doesn't know what it's like to have a father present in her life. And so Jesus comes into her life and calls her daughter and says, I'm going to be that person for you. Find your identity in me. Find your security in me. Find love in me. Find healing in me because I am available to you the way that no one has ever been available to you before. So let me encourage you, if if you find yourself in that kind of situation, do the same thing. Reach out to Jesus the way that this woman did and find everything that you need found in him and in him alone. Because he's the only place where it's all found in one package. Let me tell you. Because every father is imperfect. Every mother is imperfect. Every spouse is imperfect and will not provide everything that you and I need for life. But in him, everything is found. And he gives it away freely to anyone that asks. And notice, too, that Jesus does this in view of the entire community, right? And so not only does she know that she's clean, everybody else knows that she's clean, too. Because he does this in view of everyone. If you've been unclean for 12 years and cast out of society and not able to touch anyone, imagine the outpouring of love as you are now welcomed back into community because everybody knows that Jesus has done a great work in your life. That's what he does for her. He not only restores her in relationship with him, he restores her in relationship with everybody else. And now she's a fully functioning member of society the way that she had dreamed to be. He restores to her her dignity in the eyes of everybody. Is this not a life-changing day for her? Absolutely is. Imagine her being embraced for the first time. She can now be a wife. She can be a mom. The first time in 12 years. It's enormous. She has her life back, and not just her life, but a better version of her life. Folks, this is what salvation does. Not only does Jesus give life in more abundance so we experience life better than we've ever had before, but Jesus then welcomes us into a community. And regardless of what made us unclean in the past, he says, go and be part of a community, be cleansed, be a full member, be a full functioning person within that society. And then he encourages the community in view of everyone, come alongside this person. Pray with them, hug them, love them, discuss with them, eat with them, live life with them. This is what we do in baptism. This is why we do it in front of everybody. It's because it's not just a Jesus and me thing. It's a Jesus, me, and everyone thing. And that's why it's so full of life and joy when we get to experience baptism because all of us are in a sense saying, we're with you. We're here for you. Welcome to the family. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does then and what he does now. And incidentally, this is why as a church, we make it our passion. This isn't just something that we do casually. We love to welcome new people into our community, despite their flaws, despite the hiccups, despite their history. Why? Because Jesus welcomed us into his community too. And so we do our best. And if you haven't experienced that as being part of this community, then we have failed Jesus. And I'm calling all of us as a church to do that better with every opportunity that we get, not just on Sunday morning, but in the garden and in the food pantry and all the way down in Haiti, for crying out loud. We welcome people. That is our passion because Jesus welcomes us. And then the story turns, right? And it says, while Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Dads, go there. Feel that. Your daughter is dead. She's not coming back. 
Don't even bother the teacher anymore. Don't waste his time. It's not worth the effort. Can you feel what he's feeling? This daughter who he's loved and invested his life in is gone. As a dad, it just it breaks my heart. And I think the closest that I've ever come to that was actually the day that Caleb was born. And he was born five weeks early, and I remember when Mandy's water broke and she called me just, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. A lot of you remember. I was standing right here. <laughs> I had to give a message on faith versus fear. Do you remember that? And riding out the storms of life despite knowing if they're going to turn out or not. <laughs> okay, yeah. I can't imagine, though, going back to that time, knowing what I know now about my relationship with my son and saying, all the days that we've spent together for a year and a half, gone. All of my plans for him, gone. My dreams and my hopes for who he's going to become, gone. Just wiped away. Can you feel where he is? Don't bother the teacher anymore. And I love this, because this is what's needed. And I love the way that Mark does this. Right after it's said like that, verse 36, ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Some of you need to make that your life verse, ignoring what they said. Yes? When people come to you and say, don't bother Jesus anymore, he's not there for you. You ignore what they said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. You block your ears and you go, la, 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 la. Yeah? Because just as Jesus was saying, don't be afraid, but have fear, we too, in Christ, can overcome every fear that we have and have faith in him and the one who gives us strength. In every situation. And so he goes, right? He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother, the brother of James. So he brings his closest companions into him uh, to see this young girl. And when they had come home uh, to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. Can you hear it? Can you see it? Family members and friends, there are 13 and 14-year-old girls standing around the home weeping bitterly for their friend who is now dead. Jesus walks into the middle of this situation. He went in and he said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. The people are still laughing at Jesus, right? <laughs> you guys who have faith in Jesus, he was just this good guy that lived 2,000 years ago. He said some good things. I'll live by the golden rule, yada, yada, yada. Don't bother me with the rest. Right? You say that Jesus rose from the dead, that he now lives in heaven, that he's coming back to call all those who are children of God to himself in his name, to give them new life. He's going to remake the heavens and the earth and establish his kingdom here on earth. What are you, crazy? People are still laughing at him. But what does Jesus do? He says, the child is not dead, but asleep. Sleep is a metaphor that the Bible uses for those who die in Jesus. So what he's saying is not necessarily that she's just in a coma or something, but she may actually, in fact, be dead. But everybody who dies in Jesus' kingdom, who has come to him through faith, their status is one of sleep, not of death, because death is permanent and sleep is not. And so he says of this little girl, she isn't dead, 
She's asleep. This is why elsewhere in the Bible, Paul's able to say stuff like, to live is Christ, to die is what? Is gain. Because death is not the end for those people who call on Jesus' name. That's the reality. That's the reality that Jesus is telling to these people, even though they don't believe it yet. So after he put them all out, so he kicks them all out of the room, and he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. Can you imagine? So Jairus is off trying to find Jesus. The mother watched her daughter die without her husband there. It's, it's unspeakable. But Jesus takes her by the hand, and he says to her, Talitha kum. And Mark includes this, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. It's one of the only phrases in Mark that's actually preserved in the original Aramaic instead of Greek. And immediately the girl stood up, walked around, and oh, by the way, she was 12 years old. What a story, right? I think of, um, I think as a dad of waking my son up from naps, and um, Mandy works part-time, and I work, and so we, we drop him off at daycare most days, and so she goes off to work in the morning. She picks him up in the evenings, but in the mornings are daddy time. That's the time when it's just me and him almost every day of the week. And I have the immense privilege of being able to wake him up every day. But most of the time, right, you parents know this, it's him that wakes me up. Yeah. <laughs> and so most mornings I wake up not to the sound of my alarm clock, but the sound of Caleb explaining what he's going to do that day to his stuffed dinosaur. <laughs> but every once in a while I wake up first because he's, I don't know, had, had a long sleep, and he, so he sleeps in, and I get to creep into his room, and I get to stand over his crib, and I put my hand on his back, and I start rubbing his back and his head, and I say, good morning, little mister. That's kind of what I say to him in the morning. And he kind of picks his head up and puts it back down. <laughs> and he picks his head up, and he looks around. And eventually his eyes start to open, and he kind of like, clambers up the side of the crib, and he, he, he has a blanket that he loves, and he balls it up into a little ball, and he rests it on the edge of the crib, and then he puts his head on it. <laughs> and then I put my arms around him, and I say, good morning. That's just the joy of my day. I, I can't think of any better way to start a day than that. And here's why I share that story. It is because what Jesus is saying is for God, To raise the dead is just as easy for God as it is for a father to wake his sleeping daughter. Just as parents come in, and they don't have to do much, right? They just, they kind of spring up to life, and they come to life, and you get to start your day. It is no harder for God to wake up a dead child than it is for a father to wake up his sleeping daughter or son. And God does this. The reason I think these stories are together is because not only is the older woman a picture of salvation, the younger woman is a picture of resurrection. Because whose voice does she hear first out of anyone? Jesus. It's a Sunday school answer, folks. <laughs> whose hand does she hold first? Jesus. Whose face does she see first on the other side of death? Jesus. He is there for her in every single way. This is the exact picture of what it will be like on the other side of death for those who call Jesus by name in faith. We get woken up by Jesus. We hold the hand of Jesus. We see the face of Jesus. We hear his voice. And we know that life and resurrection has come to us too. This is the picture of what he gives us here. And Mark is pointing past the actual situation to convey a very strong message to us that Jesus will be there on the other side of death for you and for me. By the way, how old was the woman? 
or I'm sorry, not old. How long has she been dealing with her? 12 years, yeah. You think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. See, those, though these people are two, their story is one. And it's why that Mark sandwiches them together in one package like this. Because it is a picture for us of both salvation and resurrection together in one. We see it all together. And those of us who are reading the story that get swept up in the story are meant to read it through our own lives and say, God, thank you. Jesus, thank you. This is unbelievable what you've given to me just as you've given it to them. And then the story ends this way. At this, they were completely astonished. Yeah, that's an understatement, right? And he gave strict orders not to, to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Don't you love how practical Jesus is? Death makes you famished. Get her something. <laughs> Bread, so, something. She needs to eat. Um, but Mark isn't done telling the story, right? The reason he includes a, a, a minor detail like that is because the greater story is this. Those who come to faith in Jesus, who die in Jesus, who are resurrected in Jesus, they get invited to a party afterwards called the Wedding Feast of the Lamb. And the Lamb who is slain, who is Jesus, is there. And all those who know him are there. And it is party time. And there is a big feast to happen. Mark is saying the same thing. That is in store for everyone who falls asleep and is resurrected by Jesus. So as we close this out, let me ask this. Who, who do you identify with in the story? Who is it that you, as we were just talking this morning, and maybe you've read the story before, who do you say, I can identify with that person? For you, perhaps, it's kind of the older woman. Um, and maybe like her, you've experienced many years of suffering. And you just think it's going to go on and on. It's just never going to end. My advice would, to you would be to reach out to Jesus. Do everything that you can just to touch the cloak of his garment because in doing so, the power of God is unleashed in your life the way you've never experienced before. Perhaps you uh, kind of identify with the parents in the story. And maybe you're not personally suffering at this point in time, but you know somebody who is. And you think, God, if they could just get healed, if they could just find healing, God, let me encourage you to run and fall on the feet of Jesus and do everything in your power to bring him home to that situation. I think all of us, we should be able to identify with the little girl because all of us will taste death. No one is immune from that fate. And so if you can identify with her this morning, I pray that like her you, and like her dad, you would see Jesus for who he is, that you would appreciate more. And like I said from the very beginning when we started this, my, my goal to today and really throughout the rest of the season of the, this series is that you would just fall more in love with Jesus. You'd appreciate him more. You'd see him for who he is. And I pray that that's taken place. I pray all of us would know that on the other side of death, there is life. That we will see him. We will hear him. We will feel him. Because he's real. And he offers his life to anyone who comes and touches him in his name. It's a good story, right? It's my story, and it can be your story, and I pray that it is. Let's pray. Father, I so appreciate the, uh, just the, the authenticity and the realness of your word. Sometimes, even when we read it, we can brush over things and move past things and not really grasp the reality of what's happening. So I thank you, God, for just moments like this where your word can come alive in us and we see it not just as a story which happened years ago, 
but we see it as the story which includes us. And so God, I, I just I want to pray maybe for those that identify with a woman this morning who have struggled with, continued to deal with years of suffering, that you'd bring healing and wholeness, that they, they would know physically and mentally that you provide healing in life and salvation and that they would live a new life in you. I pray for those of us that have experienced maybe tragedy in parenthood, which unfortunately happens in this world. That in this time, in this story, and as we worship, that you would bring a fresh sense of your love and your grace and your mercy to their lives. Help them to see you in a fresh way, to trust you in a new way, even in the midst of storms and circumstances that are outside of their control. And Father, I do pray for all of us that we would see you for who you are and that you can provide life even after death. Thank you that that little girl's story can be ours. And I pray for those for whom that story is yet to be, that this would become an opportunity for them to accept that story for them. They would take that opportunity to invite you in, to make you Lord, to entrust today and every day that is to come to you. I pray that in your goodness and your grace, they wouldn't find you lacking in anything. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for how good and gracious he is. We entrust this time in his good name.